This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Punch Stanimirovich. I'm the highest and youngest ranking member of the Pink Panthers. I'm the first American Pink Panther. They call me Punch, by the way, for the Punch safe. There's a safe that I could open in like 15, 16 seconds. If you ever let me demonstrate it, I will. Punch Stanimirovich was born in New York City to Serbian immigrants. In 1971, the year before Punch was born, both of his parents were arrested in connection with a heist at a museum in Miami, where thieves made off with $1.5 million in artwork and silver. As it turned out, the couple had already been under surveillance by the police for a series of jewel heists in Manhattan's Diamond District. So um, I'm very rare when it comes to any of these Pink Panther guys because I was born into this. You know, I'm my father's son, so I was born into this since I was a little little, little baby, like little kid, a little child, witnessing all these people coming in and out of my house. Punch's father managed to avoid a prison sentence and then started various businesses, hiring many of his fellow countrymen to work for him. For Punch, they were like family. I grew up with so many intelligent people that came from Bosnia, from Croatia, from Montenegro. And, you know, I was practically raised by these guys because my father, you know, was big in construction business. And he employed 50, 60 people from the Balkans. But they weren't coming to America just to work in construction. Guys are hungry. They want to make some money. They do a job with my dad and they go back rich. And that's how the Pink Panthers started over there, because they had guys that actually worked with us, you know? So this is all the evolution of how the Pink Panthers became the Pink Panthers, because you don't wake up one morning and then there's a bunch of Pink Panther guys that are robbing Harry Winston or Graf. This is like the first Pink Panther crew. Punch is making a major claim here, that when these guys who had been working with his father returned home to the Balkans in the mid-1980s with their money and their newfound skills, that's when the Pink Panthers were born. I'm Natalia Antalava. I'm a journalist based in Eastern Europe, and I'm going to take you into the world of Serbia's most brazen jewel thieves. The most daring and successful diamond thieves in the world. 30 to 40 seconds. In, out. They've stolen half a billion dollars worth of valuables. Two well-dressed men strolled into an exclusive jewelry store in London and walked out with $66 million in jewels. They're called the Pink Panthers. They're a loosely connected crew of over-educated, underemployed, ambitious young people who rose from the ashes of the Yugoslav Wars of the 1990s to commit elaborate smash-and-grab heists all across the globe, often in broad daylight. This is Infamous International, the Pink Panther story. 
episode six. Who's the boss? So the story actually starts in the 70s and the 80s in uh, Yugoslavia. Paj Stanimirovic has one story about the Panthers' origins. Serbian investigative journalist Jelena Zoric has another. She's one of the leading experts on the Pink Panthers. We're hearing her through a translator. And that's where we still lived in the communism, which was very strong in our country. And these people, actually, they were helped by our secret services who helped them with logistics. I mean, what I mean when I say logistics, it's like they helped them move outside of Yugoslavia and live somewhere else in Europe, find the apartment, everything they needed for their life. They did smaller robberies there to have a better living. They were protected by the secret services. They had fake documents, they had fake passports, they were helping them with that. And also when whenever they were in travel around the world or in Europe, they could always come back to, to Serbia, which was uh, protecting them. Now, why would the Yugoslavian secret service help a bunch of criminals operate in the West? Jelena Zoric says it was an arrangement with benefits for both sides. They would help them hide so that they could use their services when they needed them. So when the Secret Service had to kill a dissident, this is how they would pay them. Okay, we help you hide, we help you escape, we help you go somewhere else, but you're going to pay us back because we're going to order this murder and you're going to do it for us. So that's what they were doing in the communist Yugoslavia. According to Jelena Zoric's reporting, the Yugoslav criminals operating in the West were part-time assets for the state security services, doing off-the-books dirty work in exchange for support and protection. But after the collapse of Yugoslavia in the 1990s, with the loss of their government backers, these criminals returned to Serbia, to two cities in particular, where many of them were from. That's Nish and Užice. And they are like the first settlement of these people who are going to start much bigger and more important group. And these people were actually uh, looking to recruit uh, new, younger generations. And they were looking for them uh, in the local bars, uh, in various sports clubs, because they knew exactly what kind of people to look for. This new, younger generation are people in their 20s who grew up during the Balkan Wars and the hard times that followed. People like Mladen Lazarevic, Bojana Mitic and Milan Lipuja. Some of these new recruits might, as Punch claims, have gotten experience with his father pulling jobs in the Diamond District in New York City. And some might have been state-sponsored criminals who had returned from Western Europe, as Jelena Zoric says. My colleague, reporter Ilan Greenberg, researched the Pink Panthers extensively for an article for British GQ several years ago. I asked him about what he uncovered about the group's somewhat murky origins. One of the things you hear again and again is they met and were organized in the football clubs, the, the soccer clubs in Niche. Really? They played soccer together? Well, well yeah, they, they don't seem like soccer playing types. These are fan clubs. Sometimes they're called the ultras because they're such ultra fans. They're hanging out, you know, at bars and cafes. They're 
you know, they're, they're watching their teams play. These are team fan clubs and they're fanatics, but it's not really about rooting for their team. I mean, make no mistakes, these are tanks. And what is the theory there in terms of how the Panthers spring from the ultras? Let, let me explain. So there, there are some people who believe that the Panthers grew out of this paramilitary group known as Arkans Tigers, uh, which was connected to the Red Star Belgrade soccer fan club. And it was led by this gruesome figure known simply as Archon. And beyond street crime, uh, Arkans Tigers actually committed war crimes in Bosnia and Croatia. They murdered, they raped, and they tortured. These are really seriously nasty guys. So you're saying there's actual proof that Archon originated the Pink Panthers? No, we don't know for certain, but it's, it's, it's a really good bet. Look, these soccer clubs were mixed up in all kinds of criminal activity, from drug smuggling to robberies, you know, even murders. Uh, and, you know, when you talk to people who really know about the Pink Panthers, they all go back to the soccer clubs. The soccer clubs are the Pink Panthers' origin story. The fact that there are so many different ideas about their beginnings brings up another question about the Pink Panthers. How do they operate as a criminal organization? What's the structure of this gang, the hierarchy? And maybe, most importantly, who's in charge? There are essentially three theories. Elan spoke to Serbian film scholar Dmitry Voinov. He researched the Pink Panthers extensively for his film All Panthers Are Pink. Here, Voinov takes us through the first theory. This organization is actually a franchise, like Al-Qaeda, for example. So, as you know, there isn't a core Al-Qaeda. It's a franchise. People appear, radicalize, take the name, maybe coordinate, maybe not, and claim they're Al-Qaeda. You know what I mean? And the same thing is with with the Pink Panthers, because there are heists that were done by different teams under the same moniker. So now you can really uh, pose a question, is Pink Panther a solid collective of same persons doing all kinds of heists? Or is it a franchise where different people are doing things in style and sort of identify as Pink Panthers? It's like a brand. Yeah, it's like a brand, yeah. The way Dmitry Voinov describes the Pink Panthers as a franchise echoes what the Panthers themselves have said on the rare occasions when they've talked. Filmmaker Havana Marking interviewed a member of the Pink Panthers for her 2013 documentary, Smash and Grab. This man, called Mike, described the highly compartmented nature of his work. Well, I don't have a badge that says Pink Panther on it. Uh, We are a network of teams working together. Everybody has their specific job to do, understand? You know, you never know where you stand in hierarchy because you never meet the boss. And Punch Stanimirovich takes it even one step further. You have a bunch of these organizations, they're like cells, but uh, as I said, most of the people that are in the Pink Panthers, I guarantee you they don't even know they're in the Pink Panthers. How do you like that one? According to this theory, The Panthers are a network of separate teams working independently, possibly connected to a big boss, one they may never even meet. But the way that law enforcement refers to the Pink Panthers paints a very different picture. They continually talk about the gang's organization in a way that makes it feel like the Panthers are a unified criminal enterprise. 60 Minutes Australia ran this piece in 2014 
which leans heavily into the notion that the Pink Panthers are a global squad of super thieves. Detective Jan Glassy has been hunting the Pink Panthers for more than 10 years. How would you describe the Pink Panthers? For me, perhaps the most organized teams in the world. The most organized teams in the, the world? The, the most organized team in the world, yes. Interpol's Inspector General, Ron Noble, talks about the Panthers the same way as a highly organized criminal syndicate, like the Mafia. Here's Noble in an interview on CBS 60 Minutes. I'd say that they're the most notorious organized crime group that I've been involved in investigating in my life. For law enforcement, portraying the Pink Panthers this way is useful. The more impressive the criminals are, the more impressive it is when you bring them to justice. Consider the way the Dubai police turned the heist at the Wafi Mall from an embarrassment to a point of pride. In 2013, authorities in Dubai purchased the blue Nissan rental car the Panthers had used in their getaway and installed it as an exhibit at the police museum, complete with a cache of fake jewels. At the unveiling, the Dubai chief of police said, and I quote, it was the first time the gang who committed robberies for over 20 years fell in the police net before managing to flee with the jewels. It was a great PR exercise. But according to journalist Yelena Zorich, at least some of the details are far-fetched. Dubai police claiming that practically nothing was taken out from Dubai. And then other sources were saying, yes, something was taken with them. But practically the only thing that maybe can lead to a conclusion that can tell us that, that they really took the money was the lifestyle they had after the heist, because they had a very easy life, very nice life. Even authorities in Serbia have found the Pink Panthers to be a useful source of positive PR. Mass police officers in Serbia moved in to arrest the four men accused of snatching an impressive haul of impressionist works. A Monet, a Degas, a Van Gogh, and The Boy in the Red Vest by Paul Cezanne, all taken from a museum in Zurich back in 2008. Scott Pelley on CBS Evening News reports on the recovery of a stolen painting worth over $100 million. Serbian authorities claim that the theft was the work of the Pink Panthers. At the press conference, held by the Serbian Interior Minister, the Cezanne is flanked by police officers in balaclavas and camouflage, holding AK-47s. And this triumph of law enforcement couldn't have come at a better time. Serbia is pushing ahead with moves to join the European Union, but Brussels is so far unimpressed with its reforms. That interview on the news program Conflict Zone hints at how useful it might be for a country notorious for its corruption to make a dramatic recovery of a stolen European artwork and arrest a few local celebrity criminals. It's the kind of news that might just ease Serbia's way into the EU. Like law enforcement, the media is also prone to describe the Pink Panthers as a glamorous and highly organized gang. With their elaborate heists, cinematic getaways, and the eye-popping value of the things they steal, the Panthers do make for excellent headlines and compelling television. 
The gang linked to at least 380 robberies around the world, famously using cars and motorcycles inside shopping malls. Police they've stolen, get this, more than $371 million in jewels. That ABC News report sums up the breathless tone of so much of the reporting about the Panthers. In fact, the media's fascination is such that any time there is a big dramatic heist, they're likely to pin it on the Panthers. In 2016, Kim Kardashian was robbed at her hotel in Paris. She was tied up while the thieves escaped with millions of dollars in jewels. Inside Edition was quick to make the connection to the Pink Panthers. The lightning speed of the raid on Kim Kardashian's hotel is a hallmark of the Pink Panthers. The Pink Panthers have hundreds of members, mainly from Eastern Europe, and they're spread across the continent. They are said to have extensive contacts who tip them off when a vulnerable target like Kim Kardashian has checked in. Except it was not true. Captain Hervé Conan of the Paris police worked on many Pink Panther cases. This was not one of them. I was dealing with a Kim Kardashian case. It was not, no, 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 it's French guys, French guys, pure local. But each time something happened, uh, people are thinking it is the Pink Panthers. As it turned out, Kardashian was a victim of the Granddad Gangsters, a group of elderly thieves led by a 67-year-old French Algerian man. They were eventually caught and prosecuted, and yet the Pink Panther connection clings to this story even now. You'll see what I mean if you Google it. It doesn't necessarily make sense that there's this one centralized hierarchy that can dictate all of these different incidents. They're very complicated. It's very hard to follow the money. Sociologist Elizabeth Williams has studied the Pink Panthers and written about how politicians, police and the media will often overstate the threat of criminal organizations. She thinks there's a practical reason why. It's very self-serving for law enforcement entities and agencies that are tasked with addressing these kinds of crimes, it's very self-serving for them to create narratives that might not be grounded in reality. It's a lot easier to say that they understand the scope of the problem and that they know how to attack it than we have no idea what's going on. But there could be some value in reinforcing a specific version of the story. If there's no criminal enterprise to take down, then why is so much time and effort being spent to take down a criminal enterprise? There's certain people in power and they will use the system to further their own interests. And who's going to benefit from this particular story being told or this particular story being told in this way? That's a good question. Who is going to benefit from the story being told in this way, where the Panthers are a highly organized, far-reaching criminal network? Attorney Michelle Estland specializes in getting Interpol red notices removed from her clients' records. According to her, there's a clear reason why the International Crime Fighting Organization would prioritize a group like the Panthers. 
you have to remember, Interpol is a political organization. It has a lot of member countries, and all of the members want something from the other members, just like any other organization. So Ron Noble was American, and what do Americans do? We do stuff about money, right? It all comes down to money with us at some point. Interpol's Inspector General, Ron Noble, had big ambitions for the organization. And those ambitions required money. Funding from Interpol's member countries. Interpol has got a huge mission, a wide-reaching set of goals. So he was faced with the challenge of getting funding to be able to expand Interpol's reach and ability. They do have some capabilities that some of the member countries are never going to have if Interpol doesn't jump in and help out in combating crime. It's worth noting that the UAE, which needed Interpol's help in solving the Dubai heist, then became one of Interpol's top donors. When Elon Greenberg began investigating the Pink Panthers, he saw that Interpol had a number of stated priorities. Major global issues like human trafficking and narcotics. But then also, the Pink Panthers, a group of jewel thieves who are striking terror into the hearts of luxury brands like Graf and Harry Winston. On the face of it, it did not make a lot of sense. Why would Interpol put their Project Pink Panther on the same level as these more serious global crimes? My name is Karen Greenaway. I am a retired FBI special agent. For more than 18 of my 23 years in the FBI, I worked transnational organized crime investigations, mostly from the former Soviet Union and the Balkans. Ilan asked Karen Greenway why she thinks Interpol placed such a high importance on the Pink Panthers. It's because they were in Europe and because they were so successful on some of their heists that they did. As a criminal enterprise, they were prioritized. But I think it was something that came out of an analysis that was done with an Interpol that this was a priority target for a number of countries and therefore they were going to focus resources on them. And so they prioritized it over other things. The Pink Panthers were a priority for a number of Interpol's member countries, specifically places where they had struck. Wealthy countries where tourism and luxury shopping might be affected by high-profile crime, especially the kind that tends to end up all over the media. You can see that's just bad for business. But given that Interpol could be spending its time and resources on the other things on the list, like human trafficking and drugs, is this a mistake? I wouldn't call it a mistake. I would call it a conscious choice because you didn't feel like you could get the collective agreement to put it on a target that was much higher value and potentially international importance. So in the end, what does Karen Greenway think of Interpol's decision to focus on the Pink Panthers? So my answer is, if I had a choice an investigator between them and the groups that I know were more violent and do have victims and are causing heartache to people who are average citizens, I would choose that group over the Pink Panthers. But that being said, you know, it wasn't a victimless crime. Now the victims, for the most part, could afford the thefts that were happening to them. And I, I'm sure somebody will get angry at me for saying this, but insurance companies covered the losses.
When the Pink Panthers are portrayed as more organized or more widespread than they really are, it does more than create a useful story for law enforcement or some splashy headlines for the media. It reinforces a stereotype. Journalist David Samuels wrote a major profile of the Pink Panthers for The New Yorker. He talked on the magazine's Out Loud podcast about the narrative that's taken shape around Serbia. They have a historical narrative, this sort of Serbian sense of being the bulwark of Europe and at the same time scorned uh, and rejected by Europe. And then Serbs themselves being uh, either left to suffer uh, or being held up as uh, villains. This depiction of Serbia as a gateway between East and West, a trading post for smugglers and thieves, we've heard it before. Journalist Lily Lynch is editor of the Balkanist magazine. She spent over a decade living and reporting in Serbia. I think that the sort of stereotypes about the Balkans is really drawn from like the 90s war and also organized crime. And this is a place where um, you know criminals flourish. There are all, there's always an answer to these sorts of depictions of the Balkans as being uniquely prone to violence. The Serbs are always kind of depicted in films, for example, as being you know very bloodthirsty and violent. That there's something you know uniquely warlike about not just Serbs, but people from the Balkans. And yet, according to Lily Lynch, whatever resistance everyday Serbs might have to the stereotypes of Western media, there is some pride to it as well. I think that there is a bit of a sort of pleasure in indulging those stereotypes. And it can be, you know, kind of a part of national pride for sure, um, in a sick kind of way. And we see stories in, in local media in Serbia about, you know, Serbs in London, you know, getting up to all kinds of trouble. It is a sort of element of like, all right, our guys are sort of like making it out there, you know, um, even if it's, you know, in, in crime. And of course, the Pink Panthers are kind of the most flashiest and sort of, you know, some ways most successful. So I mentioned that there are a few ideas about how the Pink Panthers are organized and ultimately who is in charge. On the one hand, they're described as a kind of franchise or they're the highly organized criminal gang that law enforcement describes and that the media likes to report on, like a cartel, but with more style and less bloodshed. But there is at least one other possibility, a third option that's specific to the Balkan states of the former Yugoslavia. Stevan Dojinovic is founder and editor-in-chief of the Crime and Corruption Reporting Network in Belgrade, Serbia. There's one difference in Balkan uh, organized crime, which is a big difference than in the countries in the West. When we say about corruption, uh, Balkan groups, they don't work like... Uh, in a way that they will find some weak spot into the police system, some weak police officer which they can bribe and use, or some other bureaucrat, uh, like we'll find in some Western countries. According to Stevan Dojinovic, the ties between criminals and the Balkan governments are at a totally different level than we might see in the West. If you look at all discovered cases of corruption, we see that Balkan gangs already had connection at the top. So there was always connected to minister of police, to prime ministers, to presidents. And this is going for decades. We're literally, like top of the state, like literally made agreement with the organized crime group to get support. And in return, they will be more safe in to continue, you know, doing smuggling. But they also share their benefits with the state, which it's, there's even a term, it's called black funds. 
This isn't simply a case of authorities turning a blind eye. Stefan's reporting shows that the highest levels of government provide the criminals with protection. In return, they receive a cut of the proceeds. They're more like partners. If you want to really, really look from the right perspective, Balkan organized crime, what they do, they make some kind of joint venture business between organized crime and the state. In Serbian investigative reporter Jelena Zoric's origin story, the Pink Panthers got their start as part-time assets of the Yugoslav secret police. It may be that that relationship never truly ended. The clinician could study. So we have a police that is corrupted. We have a, a secret services which are corrupted, and these people are always useful to them. According to her, this arrangement creates some useful flexibility. Once the teams are trained up, you can ask almost anything of them. They're using them specifically because the scenario for the heist and the scenario for the murder are exactly the same. Everything that's leading to that point and everything, the escape afterwards, it always has the same scenario. It's just that final stage that is different. This idea that the Pink Panthers enjoy the support and protection of the Serbian state in exchange for doing their dirty work it's very different from the glamorous image the Panthers seem to work so hard to project. It's so different from the breathless way the media tells their story. This is a much more sinister equation, where a heist and a hit are not so far apart. Coming up next on Infamous International, the Pink Panthers story. If there is a place on Earth that's made for the Pink Panthers, it's a very tiny, very rich place called Monaco. I said, well, why would any criminal come to Monaco to steal? He said, very simple and direct answer, he said, because there's a lot of money here. The amount that they're pulling in these two-minute heists is so astonishing. I think people can't really grasp it. It's like magic. One highly effective police chief finds that going after Monaco's criminals might land him in deep water. In our last meeting, he said, obviously, I can't investigate crime. They don't want me to. So I might as well just become part of it. I can't imagine a more hideous, but yet in some ways fitting death for someone who was as powerful as this guy really was in Monaco. That's next time on Infamous International, The Pink Panther's Story. Infamous International, The Pink Panther's Story, was produced by Best Case Studios in association with Coda Story. Hosted by me, Natalia Antlava, and written by Katrina Wolf, Adam Pincus, Suzanne Myers, and David Markowitz, with help from Brent Katz and Matt Levin. For Best Case Studios, executive producer, Adam Pincus. Senior producer, David Markowitz. Producer, Katrina Wolf. Associate producer, Hannah Leibovitz-Lockhart. And consulting producers, Julie Goldstein and Louis Spiegler. For Coda Story, reporting by Alan Greenberg, with associate producer, Rebecca Robinson. Edited and sound designed by Galen Mullins and Max Michael Miller. Music by Dave Harrington. Archival producers, Magda Gora and Paul Dallas. 
This has been an Exactly Right production. Executive producers Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hartstark, and Danielle Kramer. With consulting producer Kyle Ryan. 